All right, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. We'll get started. In John chapter 11, we will be looking at the second section of John 11. We looked at the first 16 verses last week. This is the famous uh, raising of Lazarus from the dead. Um, John sort of introduces this, this whole section with a mysterious person, uh, a mysterious place, and uh, a mysterious set of sisters. And last week we looked at who they were. Lazarus is the person, Bethany is the place, and Martha and Mary are the sisters. And we looked at that, we, we've discovered that Jesus knows them from a, a previous interaction with them. We went to Luke chapter 10. Uh, we saw that he had met them there before. And there is a relationship here. Uh, they, they, there is a, a love relationship. Jesus loves Lazarus and he loves uh, the family. But Lazarus gets sick. And so a message is sent to Jesus to make him aware uh, that he is sick. And if you remember, a message has to be sent to him because Jesus is away. Chapter 10, uh, when it ends, effectively ends Jesus' public ministry. He retreats to the area beyond the Jordan, the area known as Perea, where John the Baptist baptized at first, we find in John chapter 1, that he actually baptized in a place called Bethabara, which is another name for Bethany. And so one might think that that's the Bethany where Jesus is at, but it's it's not because a message has to be sent to him, and then we find out that he has to actually uh, leave that area and go to Judea to go and see Lazarus, and we'll find out even today in another verse that indeed this is a different Bethany that's close proximity to Jerusalem. But Jesus has, has left the area because once again, the Jews attempted to stone him. They picked up stones. Uh, they wanted to kill Jesus because of uh, his, his, his statements, really, right? I and my father are one. And it's a knee-jerk reaction. They just, they are angry uh, by his statements and they want to kill him. But after this chapter, chapter 11, and this amazing sign, which is the seventh of, of the miraculous signs that John picks to put in, in this gospel, uh, Jesus' fate will be sealed. The Jewish leaders will get together uh, and they will sort of have, hold counsel and they will resolve uh, to put Jesus on trial um, and to kill him. So Jesus is, is away. He's out of the area. And when he learns of Lazarus' sickness, he makes an incredible statement in verse 4. So I just want to take you back to verse 4 of chapter 11. When Jesus heard that, when he heard that he was sick, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So he hears that Lazarus is sick, and he makes this amazing statement. It's amazing because it's, it's prophetic. It's prophetic not only of Lazarus, but of himself. Uh, he uses some divine omniscience here. He knew what he was going to do. The sickness uh, would claim Lazarus's life, but it would ultimately uh, not be unto death, but it would be for the glory of God. How would that be? Well, because Jesus is going to go back and he is going to raise him from the dead. So it's going to be an act that will bring ultimately a glory to God and won't be unto death. And so his death, his initial death, is really about bringing about glory to God. And we talked a bit last week, that's kind of hard to get our minds around, that God's glory is worth that. It is one supreme, it is the supreme theme of all of creation, all of the universe, uh, from creation to redemption and all the works of God in between. Uh, it is all about God's glory. However, it's not without his love for his creation. And last week, we saw a little glimpse of it. It really was a, just a side note from the author, John. We saw it in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
But in this chapter today, we're going to see that the love and compassion, we're going to see that uh, highlighted uh, in a greater way in this section. So we're going to look at verses 17 through 36. So start in verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. We'll stop there. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word today and the opportunity to see the love of Jesus in this passage, that not only was he divine, fully God, but also fully man, that he wept, that he feels, he's compassionate. God, we want to see the love of the Savior today. Would you just open up your word to us, Lord? Help us to see spiritual truth and to apply it to our lives that we might glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, starting back in 17, we'll start there again. Uh, it says, when Jesus came, he found that he had already been dead in the tomb four days. So Lazarus has been in the tomb already four days at this point. Uh, we talked a little bit about this last week, that that means that he had to have died before the message of his sickness got to Jesus, or maybe shortly thereafter. And Jesus, upon hearing the news of his sickness, because he loved Lazarus and his sisters, did the most loving thing, he waited two more days. Oh, what love. Can you feel the love? And I love that John puts that there, right on verse 5, Jesus loved Martha sister and Lazarus, because then he waits two more uh, days. And you, we looked at this and said, well, how is that love? That doesn't seem very loving, but there is a reason. There's a bigger reason as to why he would wait um, four days. Because uh, you could ask, well, why didn't he just go right away? If Lazarus had died with the message en route, and then Jesus got the message, and it's a day's journey back to Jerusalem, well, he still would be pretty dead. I mean, dead is dead. Dead for two days? That's pretty dead. And so for Jesus to go and do a miracle then, 
That'd be amazing, right? If you knew someone who was dead for two days and they resurrected, you go, wow, that's amazing. So why doesn't he go right then? Why doesn't he go when he gets the message if it's about raising him from the dead? There's a very simple answer that the reason he waits till four days is to challenge superstition. Because the Jews had a very interesting belief about the soul and about death. That when one died, the soul uh, would not immediately depart and, to, and be with the Father, but he would hover around the body. Kind of creepy, actually, right? Would hover around the body for three days, potentially to re-enter the body. They believed that. And so if one were to wait, say, to the fourth day to raise someone from the dead, then that death would certainly be considered irreversible. But to possibly do it after two days, oh, well, maybe that spirit was just waiting to go back in to the body. But after four days, decomposition is now to set in, and the spirit's like, I'm not having none of that. I'm out of here. And there's no, there's no chance. So Jesus is even aware of Jewish superstition. So we didn't really see that last week because, well, verse 17 wasn't in our passage. So now we see that when he arrives, he's been dead four days. That's not by accident. That's by design. It explains why he waited two more days, right? Because he loves him so much. I'll wait two more days. He does love him. He does love him. We'll see that here. But he was waiting for another reason so that the, the Lazarus would be considered dead, truly, truly uh, dead. Now, while the Jews maintained that belief, there was still one overriding and more important belief uh, about a death that was true, and that was the truth that uh, no man could control death. No man has uh, control uh, over death. I mean, you, your days are numbered, right? We say things like that, you know? When it's my time, it's my time, right? Um, I understand people can take life, right? They take their own life. They can take those matters into their own hands. But in terms of a human desire to live, right, we just don't know how many days we have. Um, the truth that no man has control over death is clear in Scripture. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, writes this in Ecclesiastes 8.8. 8. No one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit. And no one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war. And wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. The reality that life could end at any moment is a sobering reality. David even talks about in the Psalms, he talks about, you know, your, a life of 70 years is good. Maybe even 80 years is, is a pretty strong life. But they soon are cut off and fly away. So even 80 years of life, when you look at the scope of eternity, it's just, it's just this little tiny little glimmer, isn't it? Well, how does James describe it, right? The book of James, he's, he says, what is your life? It's a vapor that just vanishes away, right? Our lives are so short. And death had come to Lazarus. He has died. He could not stop it. He had no power to do that. Man does not have that ability, and now, even with the miraculous healing powers that Jesus uh, possessed in the Jewish mind, it was irreversible because the soul had departed. It's four days, right? Long gone. You've missed your chance, Jesus. Well, let's see if that's the case. Verse 18. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother, now, we already established last week that this Bethany was near Jerusalem, and we really don't need this verse, but here it is. It tells us it's only two miles away. So we know that this is a Bethany that's close to Jerusalem, but we also learn something uh, else, 
that um, John has another reason for telling us that this Bethany is close to Jerusalem because there's a crowd there. Did you notice it? There's a crowd of people who have come from Jerusalem to help comfort uh, Mary and Martha. And they've come from Jerusalem. And this is important here uh, because, well, a couple of things here. You have the Bethany near Jerusalem. Um, Obviously, this family is well-known because two miles away, people have come to comfort the family, to come around them. And and mourning in, in ancient Israel, you know, they, that was a big deal. It was considered a pious duty to come alongside a family and mourn with them. A typical mourning period would be a 30-day period. And so that first seven-day period, the most intense period of mourning, you would expect to have people staying with you that entire time. So it's not a surprise to us as we read through this to find that there are still mourners there four days after he's been dead and buried. So there's still many, it says, many of the Jews still there. But I want you to note something in your mind. There's two perspectives we have to keep in mind as we go uh, through this. One is the human perspective. The human perspective is that there are mourners that are there to comfort the sisters, right? That, that's why they're there from the human perspective. But there's also the divine perspective. The mourners are not just there to comfort them, but they're there to witness the miracle, right? Because that ultimately is the, the purpose. Because what does God want from all this? His glory, right? So you just got to follow that. It's all about God's glory. So let's see what happens here in verse 20 when Martha hears that Jesus is coming. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now, last week I told you we went back to Luke chapter 10 uh, to read through and reintroduce ourselves to Martha and Mary. And, you know, when you, when you kind of look at these, you know, oh, this kind of matches up to these two people here because Martha was the one that was busy with, uh, she was distracted with much serving. Do you remember that? She's busy doing hospitality. Uh, she's running around. But who was Mary? Well, she was the quiet one, the contemplative one. You know, she was sitting at Jesus' feet and heard his word. And Martha complains to Jesus that her sister was just sitting there and not helping. You remember that? And so do you remember Jesus' reply to her? Uh, she, he says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about, you know, many things. But your sister, you know, there's one thing, your sister's picking the better thing, right? And that can't be taken away from her. That's, that's where you, you need to be. And here we come to this account. The two women are in a house. Martha hears of Jesus coming. Well, she, she gets up and runs out the door, right? That's just, that's, that's fitting with her personality, right? She leaves her house. She went to meet him. And where's Mary? Well, she's, she's sitting in the house, all right? So this, this fits perfectly. This is definitely that Mary and that Martha. So Martha gets to Jesus first. She's, she's outside the house, and she is not with uh, Mary. Jesus has just only entered the village. Look at verse 21. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, uh, I don't think this is a rebuke. I don't think she's chastising the Savior here, because remember the relationship. There's love there. But I do think she's heartbroken. I do think she's full of grief. And I do think she's, she's disappointed. Um, because what does she desire? What does she want uh, from the Lord? Well, she let the Lord know that he was sick, right? So obviously in her heart, she was, I think, hoping the Lord would come back and he would do this miracle and save Lazarus. But I do think this, this, this little, just little phrase here, does illustrate the level of faith that she had in the Lord. She does have faith in the Lord 
where to have, he has the ability to, to heal Lazarus, to keep him from dying, right? She, she understands that. But she doesn't seem to have enough faith to believe that Jesus could do something as amazing as raise him from the dead, particularly that after he's been dead four days. And there's, you know, um, another statement from Martha that does illustrate a great faith. I don't think it's this one. I think it's in the one that follows. And I think it's one that I want to focus on more. I think it's one that we should mirror. And it's in verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Interesting statement, isn't it? What is, what is, meant, by, what is meant by that? Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Well, some have said that this shows that she does have a faith in Jesus, that even now, even after he's been dead four days, Jesus could resuscitate Lazarus, bring him back from the dead. But I don't think so, because just another verse over, verse 24, maybe Jesus is going to say in verse 23, Lazarus, he'll rise again, right? And then she'll kind of go, well, yeah, I know he's going to rise again, but in the last day. And then when he gets to the tomb, and he wants to open the tomb. She's like, don't open that tomb. He's stinking. He, I think she opposes that. So I don't see in her mind, I think in her mind, you know, that the opportunity was gone. I don't think that's what I see here based on those responses. But I do think she's saying that despite her heartache, despite her disappointment, she will still trust in Jesus, even now. I think those two words are huge. I would underline those in my even now. Remember that simple message they sent to Jesus in verse 3, the message he received about Lazarus. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. It wasn't based upon their love for Jesus. What they reminded Jesus was about was how much he loved them, right? You love him. And so we're coming to you, we're bringing this before you, not based on how much I love you, but how much you love me. And so my question is this, does Jesus love Lazarus even now? Does Jesus love Martha even, even now? He didn't come? Does he love Mary even now? Well, the answer to all those questions is obviously yes, even now, he does. And many of us get to those points in our lives where it's the even now. We look at our lives and what's happening, right? And we go, ah, even now will I? trust you. We just sang a whole song about, right, trusting in the Lord. And sometimes we don't get the answer we were hoping for. Martha and Mary didn't get the answer they were hoping for, right? They were hoping for, yes, I'm coming right away. We'll, we'll fix this. But she says, but even now, I know that, you know, God will give you whatever you want. I'm going to trust you. And that is the place I think we need to live. I think is the place we need to be. How many times have we prayed for people hoping that God would restore their health, right? And God always answers prayer. I do want to remind you, he always answers prayer. It's just that sometimes we're just not happy about the answers that we received, right? Sometimes his answer is no. And we can't, in our minds, imagine, like, why could that be no? We certainly you want this person to live. We want him to live. And God doesn't answer the prayer the way we think he should answer the prayer, and that loved one passes away. And the question I have for you is the same question, even now, even now will you trust? Even now, even though, even though you didn't get the answer you hoped for, would you trust even now? I see great faith there in Martha's statement. But even now, I'm disappointed. I am, I'm heartbroken. I didn't get what I wanted. 
but I will trust you even now. I think those are great words. Spurgeon said this about these words. Some prayers would be all the better if they were shorter, all the better if they did not so much declare our will as declare our confidence in the goodwill of Christ. I like the omissions of Martha's and Mary's prayer. Even now, even now. And look at Jesus' response. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. Now, what's Jesus saying here? Well, we've read the whole thing, so we kind of know. We actually know what he, what he means here, but I think she misunderstands this. Um, she has just come from where she was being comforted, right? There are mourners in the house. There are people there that are, that are trying to console her because she's heartbroken. But these are Jesus' first words to her. Your brother will rise again. I think a lot of times when um, we're in situations where we're trying to console somebody or comfort someone in a time of loss, we struggle with what to say, right? We just don't know. We don't know the, the words. Like, how do you comfort someone with loss? Say, like, I don't know, English rugby fans. What do you say? What do you, what do you say? You go, well, perhaps next year, David Farnham. I know. <laughs> but we, we do go to those things, don't we? Well, well, maybe next year. Maybe next year. But on a serious note, though, when you're at a funeral with somebody, the words aren't there sometimes. And a lot of times we default to, you'll see them again, right? Which is a truth. And I think that's how Mary takes this. He will rise again. Well, I know, I know he's going to rise. I see. Okay. Yeah, you're right. I got to keep my perspective there. And a lot of times struggling to say, my, I've, I've learned this. One thing as a pastor I've learned is this, is that if you don't know what to say in those kind of moments, it's best not to say anything at all. A very wise pastor sent a very young pastor and another young pastor to one of those kind of funeral opportunities. We had uh, the women's ministry director at our church who had been the director for years was dying of cancer and she was in a hospital in Los Angeles. And so Pastor Chris sent myself and another pastor down to just be there. No instructions, no like, here, take this and read these many things or do these. He said, just go there, go be there. And the whole time we're driving down there, we're both thinking the same thing, like, well, what do we say? What do we do? Like, what, how do you do this? And I think that's what he wanted us to learn. And, and you know what? We were there. We didn't know how long we'd be there. We brought a few changes of clothes. We were just going to go be there. And honestly, I, you know, we had the, a grieving husband watching over his his, his wife, she was unconscious. You know, she wasn't able to interact in any way. And all the sons were coming in from out of town. And, um, you know, it's all through the night. And we're trying to catch a, a little shut-eye here and there. And I, I remember I was just curled up on a little armchair in the corner by the lifts. And I remember being woken up and seeing a guy come in and look at me kind of strange and keep going. And so I kind of roused myself and I went in. It's one of the sons, <laughs> right? And, and, and so I come walking in. And he's like, were you just sleeping out there? Like, oh, yeah, sorry about that. So he wanted to know who we were. We're, you know, pastors from the church. And I, I felt kind of dumb, honestly. And, and the whole time we're there, we were just there. And maybe we read a few scriptures. I remember doing that. But I really don't remember saying anything profound. I don't know what you say in those times. They watched their mother die. And it was awful. But I will tell you this, at the funeral, every one of those guys come up to the stand and they all made a comment about the support of the church and the pastors. And I remember going, I didn't do anything. Like, I was sleeping. Like, I was, I wasn't, you know what it was? We were just there. We were just there. And it showed we cared. It showed we loved. And I think just in my advice to you, if you're just there, be there. 
You don't have to say anything profound. You don't have to say anything wise. Just be there. And so perhaps she's come from the mourners and they've been all doing that to her, right? Like, oh, they're there, you know, you'll see him again. And they've been given, she's been given the routine comments. And so when Jesus comes in and says, your brother will rise again, look at her response in verse 24. Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise again in the res- resurrection of the last day. Yeah, I know that. I, I understand what you're talking about, the, the ultimate resurrection. Now, what are we talking about here? Well, the Pharisees weren't all terrible. I know we kind of put a bad light on them, but they had actually affirmed this true teaching. That's how she learned it because it originated in the Old Testament. The truth that there would be a resurrection. Um, Job uh, talks about it in Job 19, verses 25 to 27. He says this, for I know that my redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh, I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. This is an amazing passage because after his skin is destroyed, he'll see God in the flesh with his eyes. How does he do that? He believed in the resurrection. Uh, Psalm 16.10 talks about the living in the eternal presence of God. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David sings about this. It's attributed to Christ as well. But there's just a couple of Old Testament examples that affirm the teaching that there will be eternal life. There will be a resurrection. Now, the Pharisees believed it, but not the Sadducees, but the Pharisees did. And Martha also knew that this was the teaching of Jesus, that he taught that himself. In fact, we looked at that in John chapter 5. If you'll just turn there really briefly, there is a correlation between these two, so I want you to see it again just to remind you. John chapter 5, verse 21. We'll look back at what Jesus has already said. John chapter 5, verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. So the Father raises dead, he'll give them life, and the Son has the opportunity to to do the same. And then you skip ahead to verse 25, and when we went through this passage, verses 25 to 29, you might remember this is the two resurrections, two resurrections that Jesus speaks about here, the first resurrection being a spiritual resurrection. It's, it's the point that we are all spiritually dead and we need new spiritual life. Look what he says in verse 25. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is. So it's actually happening now because he's here. When the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. This is a spiritual resurrection. Jesus said it's, it's, it's happening now. It's now is. Verse 26, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Verse 28, do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who hear, sorry, all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. That is the physical resurrection. Why? They're in the graves. Did you see that? So Jesus already has spoken about this, a spiritual resurrection, because we're all spiritually dead and we need new life spiritually. But then later, a physical resurrection. And in that physical resurrection, all will receive physical bodies, but some will go to the resurrection of life, some to condemnation. So what is Jesus talking about here when he says, I am the resurrection and the life in verse 25? This is, this is where we're going, right? This is 
this is the huge part of the whole thing, right? I am the resurrection and the life. In fact, this is the fifth of the I am statements of, of John. We've seen several of them go by already. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world, the door uh, of the sheep and the good shepherd. But here he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he claims to be both of those things. And Martha believes in a resurrection, but it's one that will take place at the end, at the last day. But and Jesus, to be true, will raise the dead in that, in that future resurrection. But what Martha fails to see here, this is where Jesus is going with this, is how the resurrection and the life themselves have appeared in Jesus. She believes in a resurrection later, but they've actually appeared in him because he says he is the resurrection and the life. Do you see the difference? And so she doesn't see that. She doesn't connect that. It's present now because Jesus is the Lord of life. And because that's true, there are two great promises to believers here in this section. I want you to see it in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Here's promise one. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. So what's Jesus talking about here? Well, first he's talking about believers because it's he who believes in me, right? And here he references death. What death is he talking about here? This is physical death. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. So believers might experience physical death, right? You may experience physical death. You may not be alive until he returns. But even though if you may die, you will live. Um, What are we talking about here? Well, believers, we believe this, that when we die, our spirit goes immediately to be in the presence of the Father. That's, That's what we believe. And Paul teaches that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. He says, we are, so we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Another great one is in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 44. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it's raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So even though your natural body may die, there is a spiritual body. And look at the contrast there. One is corruption, but the other incorruption. One is dishonor, but the other is glory. One is weakness, but the other is power. And that's the whole point here. Even though a believer may experience death, death simply issues in new life, amazing life, right? Did you see the contrast? Everything in that second life is better. Corruption to incorruption, weakness to power. Yeah, I'll take that. Spurgeon said this about this, death comes to the ungodly man as a penal infliction, but to the righteous as a summons to his father's palace, right? To the sinner, it's an execution, but to the saint, an undressing. Death to the wicked is the king of terrors. Death to the saint is the end of terrors, the commencement of glory. That's how we look at death, right? It is the beginning of the new life, the glorious life, and so it's not to be feared. And that's how Jesus is the resurrection. How is he the life? How is he the life as well? Well, look at Verse 26, here's another great promise. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Okay, so if you believe 
you're a believer, you may die, but even though you might die physically, you'll live. That's the first promise. But then he says, so if you live and you believe, you'll never die. Is this a separate truth? Well, it is. The separate truth is this. If you live, you have eternal life and you believe, you'll never die spiritually. It's almost the opposite of what we looked at John chapter 5, where he said there's a spiritual right resurrection and then a physical resurrection. Here we have the physical being spoken of this, physical death or a spiritual death. Well, no, you, you won't have that. You'll have spiritual life. You won't die spiritually. Why? Because you live and believe eternally. So it's, again, just confidence, the fact that death has no power over you. You could echo the words of Paul, oh, death, where's your sting? Hades, where's your victory, right? That's the idea here. And so he just says to Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? What I've just told you, do you uh, believe this? What's he asking her here? She's already said that she believes in the resurrection. So is he asking her to believe in that? Or that he could uh, raise Lazarus? Do you believe that I could raise him? No. He's asking her if she believed that he alone was the source of resurrection power and eternal life. That's what he's saying, right? Because it's in him. Do you believe this? One commentator has said this about Jesus' question. To believe this is to believe what he says of himself and thus to believe in him. It's the one thing to hear it, to reason, to argue about it. And it's quite another thing to believe, embrace, trust it. To believe is to receive, to hold, to enjoy the reality and the power of it. And with all that lies in it, which is joy, comfort, peace, hope, the measure of our believing, while it's not the measure of our possessing, since the smallest faith has Jesus, the resurrection and the life, completely, it's yet the measure of our enjoyment of it all. I love that. It's not, it's not, it's, it's everything that comes with it. Do you believe this? Do you believe then that you can have comfort, a joy, hope, peace? I am the resurrection and the life. So the even now statement Right? While such a great statement of faith, Jesus wants to bring her further and says, but all that power, it's in me. Do you believe that? And that's the question for us today too. Do you believe it? Do you, do you believe that? Because even though we see death and destruction, even though see, we don't see the things we want to see sometimes, the question still must come to you, but do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus has that power? He is the resurrection power. He is the life. You should. Because you all have that spiritually. You've been given spiritual rebirth. You've had a, experienced a, a spiritual resurrection. You have spiritual life. And because you have that, you have the promise of eternal life. There will be a resurrection because it's all tied up in who Jesus is. So Martha responds with one of the greatest confessions in all of scripture. Look at verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, who is to come into the world. This is really remarkably similar to John's purpose statement at the end of the book when you get to John chapter uh, 20, when he says it's, these things are written that you may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's very similar to that, isn't it? Because she says, you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So she believes that he is the Messiah, he's the coming one, but she still has no hint of the coming miracle, I don't think. I think that's going to take her by surprise. 
So look what happens here. This, the narrative moves on in verse 28. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. So Mary's still back at the house. Remember, she's back there being comforted by the, the mourners, and she's got the friends and the family there comforting her. So apparently Jesus sent Martha to get Mary, to get her out of the house. Perhaps maybe just to have a, some one-on-one time, a private meeting with her before he would uh, be spotted and get into the house. So um, that's what happens. But, but Mary kind of blows it. She was told secretly, and she's kind of supposed to leave secretly, but she leaves in such haste, she arouses uh, suspicion from the mourners. Look at the next two uh, verses. Verse 29, as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Uh, Now, Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. So she gets up so fast that uh, any hope of a private meeting is over (laughs) because the crowd notices and they are following again. But remember, the two perspectives, from the human perspective, they think she's going to the tomb to weep. So they want to comfort her. They want to go with her to the tomb. We'll go where she's going. We want to comfort her. But Jesus is going to the tomb for something else. So he needs the witnesses, right? So from the divine perspective, the witnesses are on their way for the miracle. Now she arrives to Jesus. Look at verse 32. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Sound familiar? (laughs) Pretty much the words of her sister, right? But notice also, she's once again sitting at Jesus' feet. She collapses to his feet. And in times of trouble, in times of sorrow, I just, I can't think of a better place to be. That's that's where you want to go, right? So they're they're grief-stricken, make no mistake. They're, they're, They're heartbroken, but she goes to Jesus' feet. And yes, she makes that statement. I, I bet you the sisters were talking about it, right? I bet it was fresh on her lips. Oh, if, if only Jesus were here, right? If only this, this wouldn't be happening, right? We do that sometimes. Oh, if only Jesus would have done this. If only he'd answer this prayer. If only, we can't live the, in the if onlys. Instead, live in the even now. Even now, even now, I'm gonna trust you. But she comes to him, she expresses him. There's a relationship, she loves him. If he had been here, he wouldn't have died. And she sits at his feet, in verse 33, there's some amazing things that take place here. I want to take a little time on this. Look what, look what his response. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. The word weeping there is clio, and it means to wail or to lament loudly. There's, there's loud lamenting going on. There's, this is the fourth day yet. There's still loud lamenting going on. Why? Why is there this loud wailing well, a lot of times in Jewish funerals and in mourning processes, they would hire, I know this sounds weird to us, a professional mourner who would wail. Now, I don't know, I don't know how you get that job, first of all. Like, is there an audition? All right, give me your best, give me your best lament. Go for it, you know? Like, ah! like I don't know how you... Anyway, they became professional mourners. And if you were a wealthy family or a more prominent family, you could have several. So perhaps they had quite a few of professional mourners. Like, who knew how to do it right? You know, they had the hankies and everything. I mean, I don't, I don't know what you bring here. But they are lamenting and wailing loudly. And she is too. I think hers is genuine. I think the others are just, you know, getting paid to do it. But hers is, hers is genuine. 
And so this is an intense scene. Think about this. This crowd now comes. He's hoping for a one-on-one with Mary. And now all this, all this, this crowd's coming and there's weeping going on and intense wailing and, and professional mourners and all that is going on. And the result is Jesus groans in the spirit. And it's a quite an interesting word, imbrimaomai, and it means literally, and it's going to sound funny, to snort like a horse. That's what it means. It's like a grunt snort, you know, or snort like Gwen does, our dog. She snorts like a horse too, or a pig. I'm not really sure. I think she's a horse pig. Anyway, it literally means to snort. Um, and it's a weird word. It only appears three times in the New Testament. And each time, the way it's translated means sternly warned or scolding. So it definitely carries the connotation of anger or, or sternness. So you might be going, well, why would that be Jesus's reaction to this, right? This is, this, there's mourning going on. This is weeping going on. This is, this is a tragic situation. He wasn't here. Lazarus has died. He loves them. How could he possibly have a reaction uh, that was actually one of anger? Well, Jesus has just declared himself as what? What has he just said he was? The resurrection and the life. And it's not just saying something nice. He is the resurrection and the life. And as God in human flesh, as he looks around him, truly being resurrection and life, and he just sees all the effects of sin, death, pain, despair, right? The power of Satan at work, all that is around him. And so it troubles him. It angers him. In fact, there's another word in the passage here. He says he, he was troubled. Tarasso. It's a further word that emphasizes the strong sort of emotional reaction Jesus had to what he was seeing here. It can mean stirred or, or agitated. It's used a couple times in Scripture just to kind of give you a fuller meaning. When uh, It's like the reaction of, that Herod had to the Magi initially when he saw them, or the disciples, when they saw Jesus walking on the water, they thought he was a ghost. Or Zecharias, when he's in the temple and the angel appears to him, right? Kind of just stirred and shocking. He, he is troubled by what he sees. It's a disturbance because of his conflict with sin and with death and with Satan, yet he is the resurrection and the life. So you can see as, as Jesus being fully God, how your reaction could be anger, right? This is his creation. We're going through Genesis right now. We're just entered into the fall and the effects of the fall. How, how that must be affecting God to see his creation. All that he's planned is just going down like this and this. The redemption plan is in place early on, right? It's before creation even, the redemption plan is in place. But it's still not without God's anger over the destruction and the despair and the pain and all that's taking place here. But... Look at verse 34. Jesus responds, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. So he wants to see the tomb. Do you see that? He wants to go to where Lazarus is buried. He asks they, it's not really clear who they are, but it must not be some of those uh, Jews that maybe aren't uh, fully in support of Christ because they do call him Lord, address him as Lord. But he wants to see where the tomb is. He's ready. He's going to go perform the miracle. But then, before we get to that, we have this little verse, the shortest verse in the Bible, right? These two words, Jesus wept. Now, why do we, why do we have that there? We have, he's groaned and he's troubled, he's angered, he's disturbed over everything that he sees, but when they start their way toward the tomb, he, he weeps. Now, this is a different uh, weeping. Remember, the other word was clio. 
The loud lamenting, the professional mourners, they have that in verse 33. But this is a different word used here. It's dakruo, and it's in contrast to the loud wailing. It speaks of a a silent bursting into tears here. Here's Here's what's happening. This is what's amazing. As God in human flesh, he's angered, he's disturbed, he's troubled over the effects of sin. But also in his humanity, being fully man, he identifies with the pain. He feels the suffering. He loves Lazarus. He weeps. Isn't that incredible? So in just a couple of verses, we see both extremes, anger over the destruction and the sin and all those things at the same time, grieving over the pain of sin and the loss that's being experienced. That verse, although it's short, it is deep in meaning. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, wasn't he? There's a great quote I came across from uh, J.C. Ryle, I think one of my favorite uh, writers. But he says this about this little section. This weeping of Christ is deeply instructive. It shows us that it is not sinful to sorrow. Weeping and mourning are sadly trying to flesh and blood and make us feel the weakness of our mortal nature. But they are not in themselves wrong. Even the Son of God wept. It shows us that deep feeling is not a thing of which we need to be ashamed. To be cold and stoical and unmoved in the sight of sorrow is no sign of grace. There is nothing unworthy of a child of God in tears. Even the Son of God could weep. It shows us, above all, that the Savior in whom believers trust is a most tender and feeling Savior. He is one who can be touched with sympathy for our infirmities, When we turn to him in the hour of trouble and pour out our hearts before him, he knows what we go through and can pity. And he is one who never changes. Though he now sits at God's right hand in heaven, his heart is still the same that it was upon earth. We have an advocate with the Father who, when he was upon earth, could weep. So good. That is your your heavenly Father. That is your your Savior as well. There is... There is all these things for the glory of God, but it's not detached from the love. Jesus loved Lazarus, and he loves, he loves you. And the crowd here at the end, verse 36, I think are rightly sort of interpreting Jesus' sorrow as evidence of his love for Lazarus. Look what they said. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. Now, again, the Jews are referenced here and, and, and possibly could be some of those that are actually hostile to Jesus. Certainly some of them would have been in such close, close proximity to Jerusalem uh, in the crowd. But these Jews are sort of marveling at how much Jesus loves the family, loves him. Jesus knew, though, interestingly, that in a few moments their sorrow would be turned to joy, right? Because he would be raising Lazarus from the dead, restoring him to the family, yet he wept. He wept, even knowing that. Why? The reason is simple. Because he loves him, right? And he loves you. He identifies with your pain. He identifies with what you're going through. That's why we had Hebrews chapter 4 read earlier today. We don't have an unsympathetic priest, someone who's untouchable and, and beyond us. He's experienced what we go through. And I know so many people in, in here have experienced difficult times. Life is hard. It is. Loss is not an easy thing to go through, but I have to remind you, I do, that Jesus is with you through it. He hasn't failed you. He hasn't let you down. 
you can be disappointed. We're human. We're like, oh man, I really wish, you know. But you also need to know this. You need to trust in the Savior. You, you need to know he, he knows better. It's ultimately his will and his plan that guides these things forward. But we need to just trust in, in him. Now, the miracle, the resurrection of Lazarus, we won't get to until next week. But I do want to remind you that it foreshadows the resurrection of, of Christ. That because Lazarus will live, it sort of lays the groundwork for the fact that, well, then Jesus can live. If that resurrection power and life is in Christ and he can raise Lazarus, then certainly he can rise from the dead as well. And we're going to stand and sing a closing song. I'm sure you're familiar with it, as long as it hasn't been changed. Because he lives? Because he lives. And I just want to uh, read these words to you. It's such a perfect uh, way to end this. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He bled and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. So let's stand and sing that wholeheartedly today. You have a Savior that loves you and he lives.